0: Hello and welcome to The Price of Everything, a podcast that aims to shine a light on pricing. The cost of commodities, that's energy, food, and so on, is such an important part of our lives. But how are those prices actually calculated? Why do they move up and down quite so much? And what's next? The Price of Everything is the first podcast dedicated purely to how pricing works. My name is Neil Bradford and I'm the founder and CEO of General Index, which is the world's first technology-led benchmark provider. Together with my colleagues from around the world and some special guests, we'll be taking you through how some of the world's most important commodities come to be priced and what the future looks like for them in the age of climate change and the energy transition. Dated Brent is the world's most widely recognized price for crude oil. But why Brent? How did an oil field off the coast of Scotland become so pivotal in global oil pricing? My colleague, David Elwood, explores the
1: history. To be in Brent is to be where the action is. The history of Brent is that of a market continually facing new circumstances and continually finding new functions to perform, new reasons to trade and prosper. Well, so wrote Paul Horsnell and Robert Masbro in their 1993 book, Oil Markets and Prices. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Price of Everything. Uh, our journey through Brent, the world's most important oil price, perhaps even the most important price for stop, has so far been part historical, part geological, political, economic, as well as given a flavour of the personalities who made the early days trade in Brent flourish. Now, we chose Brent as a topic for our first podcast series, not only because it's the king of prices, but because, as many of you will know, the benchmark is going through a period of upheaval. But as Horsnell and Masbro's quote suggests, Brent has a strong survival instinct, which was as true in 1993 as it is now in 2022. But amid existential challenges, are its days now numbered? Or will it live to fight another day? To help me discuss the future of Brent, I have two guests. Uh, First, my colleague, Sakev Vimprala, who leads the European oil pricing team at General Index. Uh, He's joining us on the podcast for the first time. Sakev, welcome to The Price of Everything. And I'm also uh, delighted, very pleased to welcome back a veteran industry trader, academic, and someone who's been keeping a very close eye on our topic today, Dr. Adi im who returns for his second outing on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us again, Adi. Well, let's do a bit of scene setting. So we're at something of, a, of an inflection point in global energy markets. Commitments are being made the world over to drive down carbon emissions by reducing our dependence on oil to tackle climate change uh, here in Europe. The Russia-Ukraine conflict has caused an energy crisis, pushing up prices and fueling inflation. And lest we forget, the coronavirus pandemic also upended oil markets in the United States. WTI crude, another key benchmark, crashed to negative pricing in 2020 at the start of the pandemic. uh, Something that turned the spotlight on the performance of key benchmarks. And as we'll be exploring over the course of this episode, Brent has its own problems and is at a crossroads. Addy, how would you characterize this period we're living in?
2: Well, David, thanks. Um, it's it's pretty exciting. So, that's what I can say. And let me elaborate on that a little bit. Um, I think you've 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 already laid sort of uh, the, the background. We we tend to imagine very often that we live in exceptional times, but most of our our Colleagues that worked before us had, you know, various wars in the Middle East, uh, various upheavals, financial crises, and so on. It's just it's just a, another thing uh, that that sort of in in financial market happens uh, every now and then. Um, what is particularly interesting about this period is that we do have a very big shift uh, shifts in terms of oil flows, namely from um, the uh, Atlantic-centric sort of situation with with the sort of oil market more towards the Far East and Middle East, where most also of the new refining uh, is is coming up. So with that change in flows, normally you do have a change in benchmarks. Um, uh, And and Brent is, is also a very, very good example of that. What tends to happen is that those who are the marginal buyers tend to start setting the price for oil uh, and the marginal bias right now are in Asia. And it's it's a very good and slightly um, a difficult question to explain, and we'll have some time here to talk about this. What makes benchmarks what they are? By all rights, we should have more benchmarks coming from east of Suez than they are appearing, but they're not taking over yet. Um, and the reason for that is what I've often mentioned uh, uh, in my book, which we talked about in your first podcast, is 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 the fact that to have a market, you have to have a proper legal system that will support that market. You have to have a proper policy that will support the market. Markets don't exist in a vacuum. Sort of markets need to be nourished and and, and looked after. Um, so anyway, that that would but the times are very interesting. Uh, we have changes in the bench benchmarks which we are going to talk about today. We have some new benchmarks uh, in, in in the Gulf. We have benchmarks, changes obviously in Dubai, which is closely linked to Brent, and we have an um, a Chinese benchmark as well, which potentially could, could be become important.
1: That's great. Well, 2nd I'm going to come to you next. I'd like us to go back to basics a little bit. I'm not going to take for granted that all of our listeners will know exactly what we're talking about when it comes to Brent and Brent prices. Um And when we refer to Brent, we're talking about really a galaxy of different things. Um, And I know you've got a list of five or six different items. So perhaps you could take us through that. What's what's your number one on that list? Uh, Yes, with pleasure.
3: Um, I think Brent um, is a label which can and is often applied by the industry uh, to many different um, aspects of the market. Uh, The first is that, of course, the benchmark takes its name um, originally from a field in the North Sea that was discovered um, back in 1971 and which began production five years later. Um, At its peak, the Brent Field was producing something like half a million barrels a day of oil. But following subsequent production declines in the 1990s and 2000s, production from the four original platforms uh, at the field um, began ceasing from 2011 onwards, uh, the last of which uh, was shut down in 2021 um, and so the original brent from which the entire complex and the benchmark gets its name uh, effectively has seized uh, production uh, the second uh, brent uh, you can say is the the blended crude or the stream or the grade uh, which is sold from the solemn terminal and this grade originally comprised a commingled uh, streams from uh, the brent and ninian fields uh, starting from the early 1980s onwards but following the shutdown of the original Brent platforms now effectively only comprises crudes from Ninian and other nearby fields. The third Brent refers to a group of five crudes that are collectively known in the market as the Brent basket. And this basket of crudes is used by price reporting agencies and by benchmark data providers like General Index to assess the spot value for a cargo of light sweet crude um, in the North Sea. Uh, And the spot value, the spot assessment, um, is effectively the fourth Brent, uh, which is often known in the market as dated Brent or other variations uh, thereof. Uh, We then move into the world of uh, derivatives contracts that uh, share the same name or a related name. Um, At the core of these instruments is the, the forward contract, also known in the market as cash BFOE. And this is a contract for physical delivery of oil. Uh, and represents the value of a cargo of North Sea crude loading in a particular month. Uh, And the terms and conditions of this contract are governed by uh, the well-known Suco 90 contract. And finally, if we were to take a step back from the little niche of uh, oil trading and price reporting to the wider world, uh, when people think of Brent, they think of what we know as the ICE futures contract, which is one of the most liquid energy-related derivatives contracts in the world. Uh, and this is a cash settled contract which represents the future value of light sweet North Sea crude in a given month, and this contract expires contemporaneously with the expiring forward contract uh, as assessed on its final day. So there are many different um, instruments, uh, all of which are connected and all of which share this name of Brent, but it all traces its history back to uh, to uh, four platforms which uh, now really only exist in, in history.
1: Thank you for that. I know that these topics are are technical, and we, we don't apologize for that, but that was a really useful um, overview of of the, the spectrum or the galaxy of Brent. Um, something that makes this whole galaxy a little bit more complicated is that each of these interact with each other, and that changes to one or more of the interlocking parts could ricochet throughout the whole ecosystem. So, uh, without going into like too much detail, maybe pick out a couple of examples of how these interact could. So
3: well, at the heart of the, the interlocking components that you talk about is uh, the cash BFOE contract. This is what makes the the, the entire benchmark system work. It's uh, almost like the sun at the center of the solar system. Uh, and whereas Brent futures allow traders to take position on the eventual value uh, of the forward contract, Uh, The forward contract is also delivered into the dated Brent uh, spot price, Uh, you know, once the cargo's loading dates are finalized, it is considered to be uh, dated or wet. And so you have the cash BFOE contract sitting between the spot price assessment and the ice Brent futures contract. But then in between these three, you have another set of derivatives contracts, which allow uh, market participants to hedge their exposure to the spreads between these three instruments. Uh, The first is uh, EFPs, the second CFDs, and the third DFLs, and effectively these three contracts respectively represent the price spread between the cash BFOE and ice Brent futures, between cash BFOE and the dated Brent spot price assessment, and finally between the spot price assessment uh, and the futures contract. And... Changes to the dated Brent spot price assessment, which we will be discussing uh, with uh, Dr. Addy in this episode, um, have to align uh, effectively with uh, changes to the the, the CECO 90 contract and all the other instruments, because you have uh, effectively a ricochet of changes that can knock through the system uh, the moment you change uh, one underlying set of uh, assumptions, because you've got many millions of barrels worth of financial exposure linked to all of these uh, instruments and therefore any changes or any announcements of changes in the future uh, can result very quickly in in
1: volatility, as indeed we saw in the past uh, year and a half. That's great. Um, Adi, uh, in his colourful book, The Squeeze, Tom Bauer described the Brent market, which had emerged by the 1990s as, and I quote, an impenetrable matrix of contracts and that the benchmark for oil prices worked so long as no one tried too hard to understand the complications. Well, for you, of course, for, for many years, it was your job as a crew trader to understand those complications, um, and that was key to building a successful portfolio. How was that as an exercise?
2: It was, uh, okay, first of all, on, on, <clears throat> on the subject of, of the book, um, I, I think... anyone looking from the outside it really is a complex contract there's no doubt about it um i i would often say that probably even a a great majority of the traders in the oil industry don't fully understand how it works but a great deal of them don't necessarily have to if they're just using some simple hedging techniques and they're 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 not what we call a market maker Uh, i worked for many years in the 1990s as a market maker talked to many of them and actually there's only a handful out there of companies that actually fully get involved in all the aspects of, of Brent trading. Uh, <clears throat> it's incredible that, you know, the, um, well, the very good example of how the contract worked was uh, 2020 and the pandemic. Um, and what's really interesting, unlike WTI, for example, Brent worked very well, It worked like a dream uh and the beauty of the brand contract and the complexity come from the fact that it organically grew over a period of time in the way that makes sense that made sense for most of the players in the market particularly big big players like bp and shell that historically had were the major producers of, of, of oil that was going into that contract as well for those listeners who are not fully familiar with the whole brand contract Uh, It's worked extremely well during COVID 2020, particularly because of all these uh, uh, bits uh, in between uh, the Brent uh, contracts, which I'll explain in a second. So, for example, when the market became very, very uh, weak following the Saudi decision to declare price war, particularly towards Russia, the first one to give up was the the, um, dated Brent, of course. With the weakness of dated Brent, if you're holding a futures contract and this dated Brent is extremely weak, your futures contract by definition becomes weak as well. So whether it's cash or futures, it doesn't really matter because the only difference between the two is EFP or exchange or futures for physicals. Then the whole of the dated Brent structure, what we call structure, which is the forward CFD curve, gets weaker as well. That automatically puts pressure on the spreads of the Brent uh, complex and the whole forward Brent curve, and finally the um, expiry of the futures contract is affected. So essentially, it's it's almost like a wave which is created by a lot of little wavelets that actually put the pressure on their price, and it gradually settles. So the whole complex is actually working extremely well. Uh, it is complex, but um, generally tends to work very well.
1: And it works well because they're all they're all walking in lockstep right it's they're all reflecting the same basis and that's something that's going to be key for us to for for, for listeners to remember as we look forward in, in in a little while to discuss some changes that are being proposed yes
2: but i will just a little bit add to what i've just said um also for listeners these things these instruments didn't just evolve by chance they actually evolved because of the needs so for example the reason the cfd market because i was i was there trading at the early days in 91 cfds emerged in 1990 just before i joined it was a one of the key reasons they evolved was a was a desire to move fixed price of a forward friend contract into a dated price so cfds were the instruments converting it into, into dated uh, cash into data data into cash in terms of fixed price to floating price and vice versa so it made a lot of sense over time obviously involved into a hedging instrument because if you're loading a cargo of nigerian oil and selling it into india you you basically have a big dated to dated exposure and as we know dated to frontline can actually move by easily a dollar or more so all those instruments actually naturally evolved the same with the efp where people would have big futures positions but wanted to move it into cash or vice versa so um complexity came uh, about because of the need um and and also helped the whole complex work
1: that's great we'll come back to some of the more of the technical aspects of, of brent pricing I'm going to turn now back to one of the earlier threads that we've picked up. Sackett, you noted that the last of the original four North Sea oil production platforms stopped pumping last year. And that was a a big hint to our listeners of the problems facing the Brent complex. And it reminded me of a quote that I read in coverage on this issue. Um, We're facing geology. You can't change the geology. So unpack for us what's the problem with the dated brent status quo
3: well uh i think that quote hits the nail on the head um in order for a benchmark to be robust and to have the confidence of the market for it to be uh, utilized there needs to be a sufficient amount of liquidity underpinning it such that the benchmark is seen as representative of a well supplied market, and then that itself, you know, that benchmark can be used uh, as an anchor point to price other crudes um, within the region. Uh, and so the North Sea basin, although quite prolific over time, uh, has faced uh, the inevitable problem of terminal declines in production. You know, at its peak, the Brent field was producing, you know, on its own more than half a million barrels a day. But we are now in a situation where you know, all of the uh, uh, grades that are currently in the Brent basket on their own are producing, you know, between, say, anywhere from six to 800,000 barrels a day, you know, given the month uh, over the last couple of years. And if it, not, if it were not for the recent uh, production startup of the Johann Sverdrup field, then at certain points last year, production in the North Sea would have been at its lowest since the late 1970s. And so, what price reporting agencies have had to do in order to create a benchmark that has sufficient liquidity in order to give the market confidence to use it uh, as an anchor point for uh, a more broader pricing of other crudes, was to add more grades to uh, the basket for inclusion. And so, 20 years ago, Brent was joined by two other North Sea grades, Forties and Oseberg. In 2007, the Ekefis grade was added, and then in 2018, they were joined by Uh, the Norwegian grade troll and so you now have, as I mentioned earlier, five grades um, in the Brent basket. But uh, despite that and uh, if it were not, like I said, for the startup of the Johan Sverdrup field, the inevitable problem is that eventually uh, production will continue to glide lower and lower and so you have uh, on any given day, you know, a a production uh, of the five benchmark grades combined being the equivalent of one Aframax cargo. And so it is now at the threshold uh, of liquidity below which the market starts to get concerned that uh, the price is no longer uh, representative of the of the regional crude oil market, And therefore, injecting new liquidity into the basket is inevitable. Uh, a few years ago, uh plats uh the current um benchmark provider for uh, dated Brent, that's the most used in the market began incorporating delivered rotterdam uh bids offers and deals into their benchmark mechanism and this uh, helped to boost the number of market signals that were being used to calculate the spot price for dated brent although under certain market conditions even those signals dried up and therefore Adding new grades to the basket uh, is the only way to be able to sustain uh, this basket as a liquid representative benchmark
1: that can be used by the industry. That's a useful exposition of of where we're at, what the problem is. Adi, would you add anything?
2: Um, yes, I mean, uh, I I agree with everything it said. The, the whole exercise for many many years for for plats as uh, as the sort of originally main reporting agency and everyone else was to increase their liquidity by increasing also the number of dates. We used to have 15-day brands, now it's 30-day and so on, increasing the volume one way or the other, just getting that volume in, uh, which has been the key problem and and still remains um, until we we'll, we'll see how this new brand goes.
1: So another one of the, the kind of big changes that has been proposed and kind of actions that was kicked off was at the end of 2020 and Platts Sought to to add more supply, inject more supply into the dated into the Brent benchmark by uh, beginning a consultation on including WTI Midland crude. Now that's a, a US crude, and that was something of a um, a revolutionary move. I know Addy, I think that's a that's a, a word, uh, an adjective you used in a paper that you published a couple of months later. Because Platts later, just for people who me not in the know that there is kind of quite a, a regimented process that's taken to these methodology changes. And first comes an idea, then comes a consultation, and then comes a, a more formal proposal. Um, but when these formal proposals came out in the spring of 2021, um, I think it's fair to say that they were not um, on the whole Um, At least the package, the ideas that that were proposed, it didn't go down terribly well with the industry. Um, And I know you had, you were uh, formulating your thoughts around this around that time as well. Um, Why was it revolutionary? Tell us about what was proposed and uh, why did it cause so much uproar?
2: Yes, it always happens during the IP week when sort of verbally came out and then came out in written as well. I think um, there's no doubt that even Platts would probably admit right now that the, the whole idea was quite rushed. Uh, that the, the main problem with with the with the original idea in in 21 was that they basically moved the benchmark to CIF basis, which is delivered basis. I'll try and make it as simple as possible.
1: Do you want to just tell our listeners what is CIF? Because I know we can have some different we can have different terms here that will come up. Sure, of course. Normally. Normally, Brent, uh,
2: um, Brent is traded on, on free-on-board basis and it's assessed on free-on-board basis. That's before it gets uh, on, on, on a ship, before oil gets on a ship. A CIF means cost, insurance, and freight, which is delivered basis. So the original 21, uh, February 21 Platts idea was they would assess it on CIF or delivered basis in Rotterdam or around the so ARA area, which is ARA, Antwerp, Rotterdam, uh, and, and so on, that whole Northwest European area. Uh, the problem <clears throat> with that idea is as follows. There's an unwritten rule uh, among the price reporting agencies, or as we often say, PRAs, is that PRAs should be assessing the market and not influencing it. What happened uh, very soon following that uh, announcement by Plath that the whole updated curve moved. Because obviously, if you're changing something from uh, FOV basis to delivered basis, you've got freight element involved as well. So the price changes by itself. Now, that's very problematic because then you're influencing the value of all the derivatives. We're talking about millions and millions of barrels, including futures trades. The other problem with that was the, um, the side of cash rent. On, on, on delivered basis, it's pretty difficult to, to trade cash rent forward. Uh, because you've got that freight element as well that has to be somehow taken into account, so that proposal would have, in in essence, would have endangered the whole of the brand complex, least of all the futures part, which is is is, is as Sackett mentioned, the most liquid and and probably most important part of that whole complex. So yes, uh, I very quickly wrote a paper said, oh, this is going to be a problem.
1: I know you, you're a you're a uh, a student of history like myself, and um, in that in that paper, you wanted to remind readers that the very first Brent contract in 1983 was a CIF contract, and that ended up in failure as the industry couldn't see a point in trading it, and it was another five oh. years for another FOB, which it remained that way for, well, it has to this day for the best part of uh, 35, 40, well, going on 40 years. Um, these, are, these are not easy things to do, right, to change benchmarks, to, to work, to look at the, the complexities. Do you think that we have sufficient appreciation within the industry about history and the lessons that could um, be learned?
2: Well, if, if you look at the price movement them, themselves, you, you, you'll realize that people have very short memories, uh, and it's 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 the one one part and parcel of us being human. We tend to forget sort of some 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 event that we don't want to remember. So big price movements, uh, big crashes, uh, squeezes, name it. We we tend to forget after a while, and then they happen again. Uh, and you're right. I mean, the, the first first couple of contracts fail because you can't just make up. A benchmark. Benchmark has to m- make some rational sense. So, Brent uh, futures uh, eventually were established only after they started mimicking the forward contract, which is as Sackett mentioned early on, at the heart of the Brent complex. So now, trying to make up another sort of um, um, a, a different type of contract is 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 actually going at the heart of the, the essence of what Brent is all about. So I think the forward contract or cash contract, as it's often called, really has to be seriously addressed
1: before we we actually go anywhere with it. So after those initial plans in the spring of 2021, they were, I mean, let's say paused, withdrawn, went back to the drawing board. Went
2: for further consultations, let's put it that way.
1: OK, we'll be diplomatic. Um do you want to just out, could you outline for us what those options were? And once we've done that, I think we'll take a break because it'll be a good point for us to to to, to pause and and reassess. So, what what having shelved or maybe paused the earlier proposals, what were the options going forward? Well,
2: the 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 the, the pause was obviously for further consultations, discussions with the industry, because it wasn't just my paper that came up very very quickly. Fortunately, most of the industry basically revolted against it as well. Most of the industry said, hey, this is not going to work. So I think the, uh, the, the Platts folks went back to the drawing board and said, well, OK, tell us what is going to work. And then we had a very long period of further consultations of another at least nine months of consultations where I think the, the, the key was uh, in that period most likely was a further consultations between ICE, the the um, the continental exchange futures provider of Brent and Platts as well <clears throat> and um the essential uh, i mean my suggestion way before was to go back to the fob basis contract and just increase the volume by adding wti midland in it but then assessing the value by netting you back to fob the key reason for that well, would would have been or what uh, probably will be and when, when the new contract starts is that all the other derivatives and forward market and CFDs, DFLs, EFPs would pretty much remain on FOB basis, i.e. unchanged or relatively unchanged. So this big problem of legacy contracts would be overcome. So let me just kind of pause there just to explain to your listeners why this is such a difficult uh, thing for everyone in the industry, for the whole of industry to fathom, and resolve is because you're trying to do the best possible solution given the constraints and constraints are massive, which is that all the existing contracts are not changed. So any solution that they're probably better solutions, but you know if they are going to impact all the legacy contracts, you know you have a problem. So you' are very constrained in your solutions. So, there aren't that many. There's not much leeway within which you are operating. I hope that helps.
1: It does. And th- there, was a, there was a second option, right, that was put that mooted about adding one of the other grades that Sake mentioned earlier, uh, Johan Svedrup.
2: I- I'll tell you right away with that. Um, at the end of the day, it was the industry that voted, but there was a sizable minority that supported Johan Svedrup. I'll, and I'll tell you why I personally wasn't a big supporter of that idea for um, several reasons, but I think there are two key reasons. One is if you actually, I think in, in one of my papers, i plotted the values of all the BFOET cargos, uh, sorry, crude with Johan Verde. Quite frankly, it sticks out like a sore thumb because it's very heavy and it, it has different, very higher sulfur content. So it really does not fit into that sort of basket sweet North Sea grades, light sweet North Sea grades. The second pro- problem is also that you have uh, market concentrations. Markets don't work very well when you have an overwhelming uh, player in the market. If you look at a BFOET, Brent, 40s, and then you have EcoFisk, Oseberg, and Troll, these three come from pretty much one producer, which is Equinox. Johann Sverde is a dominant producer. Is Equino Brent is virtually disappearing. So you only have essentially 40s. So the, the dominance of Equino within that basket would be just huge. And I think that's one of the re- key reasons why the market rejected the idea.
1: Well, that was a, a nice little teaser about the trajectory of the conversation as, as we'll as we'll continue. Um, I think that's a good place for us to pause. We'll bring the first part of this episode to a close. Uh, In the next part, I'll be asking Addy um, about uh, which of these proposals won out. Um, No prizes for guessing which trajectory we're on. Um, uh, As we continue to explore the history and the future of Brent, the world's most important oil price benchmark.